Amen? You are the church. I, uh, as I told you before, I, we, we spent this last week away and, and doing a lot of just praying and just searching, searching our own hearts, you know, where, where are we at and looking at different things and things that had come up. And, you know, let, let me just tell you this, just in case you didn't know, our world is a mess. Our, our world is a, a confusing mess. It is a, 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 I mean, there are so many things that are going round and round in our culture today, in our world today, that it, it becomes really confusing. Just like this. Am I allowed to call a boy a boy? Or a girl a girl? Culturally, am I, am I allowed do that or do I have to come up with some new adjective? Or even, you know, in the church, who's it okay to marry who? What sex can marry what sex and what sex, what's okay? It becomes a confusing mess. Even down to the point where, what kind of music can we play in the church? Whose music can we play in the church? What ministers, what ministries can we trust? And they're staying on track. Which ones are compromised in where they are and, and the way in which they're proceeding forward? Are they compromised or have I compromised? Or have I just gotten religious? And in all of that, I come back to this place where I can't help but continue to process everything through this question. How does, it, how does all of this have an effect on you? the body of Christ, the people that, you have, that God has brought here, the people that God has called to this fellowship and that God has given me spiritual responsibility over, how does it affect us, you? Let me, let me just say, and again, some of those honestly are, are very easy answers when it comes to biblically, I'm talking about culturally, but let me just say that, that those things and all the confusing things about all the stuff that's happening in our world, it's way more than this simple pastor has the ability to unravel. I, I don't understand it all. And honestly, I feel like I'm wasting a lot of time trying to figure out a bunch of things that I really don't need to figure out. And I really came to this full-blown decision. I am simply going to stick with God's word the best I know how. Amen. I am just going to stay with what God says and I'm going to do the best here in the church as I can to rightly divide the word of God and then I, I'm just simply going to let the chips fall where they may. And, and if you get offended, then you get offended. But if you get offended because of what God says or how I divide the word, if you get offended by what he says, then you need to take that up with him because he's the one that you're offended with. And honestly, I'm sick and tired of feeling like in every single issue that's going on, I have to choose sides. Look, I'm done trying. Yes. 
And I am just, you know what? I'm not gonna be found on anybody's side but God's side. I wanna be found standing with God. I wanna be found doing what God has called us to do, what God says we should be doing. And, and I simply wanna stand on that. I don't want to be for, uh, you know, I don't want to be against this and against that. I don't want people to know the church for all that we're against. I want people to know the church. I want people to know me for what we're for. And that has to be just God's word. Because I am not smart enough to stand and figure out everything else. I just got to, okay, God, this is what you say. I'm trusting you. And you know what? If I'm wrong... I'm going to go down with him. So whatever that means to each of us, I I simply, uh, saying that, I simply, I want to do everything I can do to simply follow Jesus. And to the the best that I can, not in a perfect way because I can't. But I want to be able to walk in a repentant way when I don't, and I want to walk in a confident way as I feel God is leading me by the word of God so that there is something for you to follow. Yes, praise you know, as Paul said, follow me as we follow Christ. Yeah. And I, I, want to, I want to be that because as we go through God's word, um, we have to decide, is it truth or is it not? And I have just come to this conclusion, and I believe this, that every single chapter, every single verse, everything from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is truth. It is God, and it is what he has given us. And what's in the Bible is in there for me. And what's not in the Bible is not there because he doesn't want me to have it. And I'm going to trust him. Because I'm telling you, we got a lot of things that are going to come that want to divide the church, that want to separate the church. And we have to stand together. And so we need to do that on God's word and on his word alone. Because all these other things, culturally, it seeps into the church. And I want to talk about that some today as we go through. I, I, I want to, again, again, stay on what we go through. We, we go through, if you're new to the church, we go through the Bible. We go through it line by line, just verse by verse. Um, honestly, way more slowly than most places do. Um, We've been in Luke for almost two years, and we're only on chapter 7. But there's a depth of God's Word that I think we sometimes miss. I mean, is there any end to what we can get from His Word, what we can garnish from what He's saying to us that can affect our lives and bring hope in and, and, and hopeless situations other than the understanding the depth of His Word? Doesn't He want us to understand the depth, the breadth, the, the, very, the very, I mean, God's Word is not a, a pond, it's a well. His love is a well. He is a well of, of wonderful things that we can dive into. So we're going to continue in Luke chapter 7 in what, um, again, I think is an extremely important place for us to go. I, I thought about going, just give, oh, let's just go to chapter 8. And then I, as I started going through this, I started realizing, no, we can't do that. There's some stuff here, um, some stuff here that probably, uh, probably will offend some of you. Amen. Probably that will convict some of you probably that will take you to a place of, I I hope, thought in your own life as I have contemplated all of these things that I'm going to talk to you about in my life. 
uh, I'll say this and I'll talk to you about this as we go on. I am with you in this. I am, I am the one that's standing up here, but please, I am, I am not. There is no intention within me to preach at you. I am I'm simply preaching the things that God has laid on my heart and I'm dealing with in my life. Yes. So let's read through this, starting in verse 28. Luke chapter 7, verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, your word, you told us in your word that your word contains authority. And I pray, Lord, that the authority of your word would be released into the hearts and lives of men and women in this place today. That, Lord, we would all receive through open ears and open eyes and open, uh, open mouths, Lord, open hearts, what you have intended from this day that we would receive. So I pray, Lord God, that you help me to rightly divide your word. I pray in the name of Jesus that you cause open ears to hear what you have intended for this day. For each and every one has been brought here for a purpose, brought here for a reason. And I thank you for letting that reasoning come to pass in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we are looking at John the Baptist. And as we look at John the Baptist and learn from his life, there's some important things I think that we should glean for our own lives. As we look at his life, I think we should examine our own lives in the midst of this so that we have some comparison. I mean, let's face it, Jesus said, we find in John the most extraordinary life that has ever lived. In relation to Jesus, in the history of the world, John's life is the most extraordinary life that's ever lived. Well, let's face it, in John's, as we look at it from a, a, a human perspective, John's life did not look that great. <laughs> yes, Living in the wilderness, eating bugs and wearing camel hair, and uh, you know, having a short period of ministry where God gives you the most difficult message there is to preach yeah. over and over and over again, only to end up in jail with a really short haircut. Sorry, that, I didn't say that first, or that just came to mind. So, if that was, <laughs> Poor guy did not look like he had a very great life. But in relation to Jesus, Jesus says, man, this is the greatest life that ever has been. And I would think that if Jesus said that about John, that we should look at John and we would aspire to the same thing. A life of greatness 
in relation to Jesus. Amen? I mean, John, this is what John said about, Jesus said about John. He said in verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none, come on, say it, none, none is greater than John. So we have on this side Jesus saying, none is greater than John. And then on the other side over here, you've got the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the other people that were around saying, hey, that guy's demon-possessed. Wow, that's quite a variation there. On one side, you got the greatest life ever, and over here you got demon-possessed. I would say there's an issue there. There were a lot of varying opinions about John. But listen, church, the only thing that really counts is Jesus' estimation of your life. That's the only thing. It doesn't matter whether it goes from this uh, degree to this degree. It doesn't matter. What does Jesus say? People can say whatever they like, and they will. But what does Jesus say about your life? What does Jesus say about my life? What does Jesus say about John's life? Because his estimation is the only one that matters. And Jesus says that apart from Jesus' own life, that the greatest person who ever has been or ever will be is John the baptizer. Not in that day, not Herod the Great, not any other political, cultural leader, John the baptizer. And and church, I do want to say this. I I think this is important because sometimes we can have a false sense of pride that stops us from going after what what God would say is great. You know, there is such a thing as godly, holy, redeemed ambition. It's not selfish pride. It's not a place of, of pridefulness that says, I want to be greatest. But it's something that says, you know what? I want to make my life count for Jesus. I want my life to mean something in Jesus' view. I want to do something in an investment, and I want to invest it wisely. I want to pour my life out following Jesus. And John serves as a great example of what a redeemed humble, holy life or holy ambition looks like. So in that place, and again, I want you to see this, in humility, John was extremely humble. In humility, John followed Jesus. He poured his life out. And you know how he did it? He did it proudly. He did it aggressively. He did it actively. He did it in a purposeful way. All for Jesus. Not for him. All for Jesus. And Jesus looks at this guy's life and says, Man, that guy is the greatest ever. I think that we should look at John's life. If Jesus says John's life is the greatest ever, don't you think that we should look at John's life as an example of what it means to be greatest? Because, listen, I'm following Jesus. I don't want to end up at the time and find out that Mark was great in the sight of others, but not in the sight of Jesus. I don't, I don't want at the end to say, well, yeah, you poured your life out for them, but didn't for me. I want to find out what John's life, why it was that Jesus said, and again, church, this is going to be countercultural. Okay, it's, it's just, it is. So some of this is going to rub us the wrong way because we, many of us, I mean, we are, we are in the world, but not of the world. And there's a lot of people that are in the world and still of the world. They just come to church. 
So it's going to rub some people the wrong way. But I think we need to look at it. And over the next few weeks, and again, I, I probably shouldn't tell you this because the topic today is not one that um, uh, doesn't really promote repeat attendance. One of the things, and, and so I want to take a look over the next few weeks at some of the things that, that made John great, or some of the things that I see that made John great in the eyes of Jesus. And, and the first thing that I want to talk about is that he called people to repentance. Yes. Look, I can just almost see John. He wasn't, he wasn't calling, he, he was, but let me just please, he was calling everyone to repentance. But I think John had a way about him. A way of making people feel like he's talking to me. Because John, yes, he called everyone to repentance. But I think he looked at people and said, you are in sin and you need to repent. I'm just making that up. <laughs> but, I, but I mean, did you, you, again, I, I should have had a camera here because the shocked look on Craig's face was like... <laughs> But that's what John did. He, John did, he took this general overstatement, over, uh, I, don't, I don't want to call it an overstatement, but he took this general overview and he made it personal to each person. Listen to what it says in verse 29. When all the people heard this, and again, Jesus was given the summary. He had just given the summary of John's life. And he said, when all the purple people heard this, and the tax collectors too, so you've got the people, um, the, the disciples and other people that were followers of Jesus that had been following him, and now you've got the tax collectors. So you've got, in the same crowd, you've got these crooks, these thieves, these tax collectors. And all those people, they declared God just. They declared, God, they declared in their own heart that God was right and good. Having been baptized with the baptism of John. Verse 30. But, you gotta, whenever there, again, we talk about this with some of the other words. But is one of those. Whenever there's a but, you got to stop and say, what's that but there for? Yes. Yeah. But, and here comes now the religious guys. The other side of the spectrum. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for who? For themselves. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They didn't reject the purpose of God for all those other people, all those other sinners. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Why would they reject the purpose of God for themselves? Because we're not like all of them. All those people. They're dirty. They're sinners. We don't need that. They, they need the waters of baptism. They need to go in. They need to be cleansed. But we... They had already found a place of cultural repentance having not been baptized by him. So John, John comes, John was out of the old line. I mean, he was out of the old prophet style. John, John, you know, he came out of this place. He was a prophet. He came in the line of the prophets and John came out and, and he began right off the bat as he came out of the wilderness crying out, repent, 
Repent. 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 Repent of what? Repent of your sin. Yes, amen. Repent. And there were people that received the message. Many people received that. And when they received that message, they publicly recognized themselves as sinners, needing to come to the rivers and to be baptized by John, needing to be cleansed from their sins, needing to be cleansed from their sins, just like water cleanses us from our filth. Water cleanses us from our dirtiness. They needed that repentance, and it was all they were receiving, they were accepting, they were a part of the foreshadowing of the coming of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place for our sins. And then there were those who rejected the message. Those who are the religious types. Those who, honestly, in church, we have to be careful. We can slip into this so easy. They were those who were there and they rejected the message and they rejected it because these religious types, they were offended to hear that they were sinners. Who is he to call me a sinner? They were offended to be invited into the waters of baptism with those other sinners. Offended to be asked to get into the same waters as those dirty people. Don't you know if I get into the waters, those dirty people, their dirt and filth will get on me? Praise God that Jesus got into those waters and openly received our filth and dirt. He's the only one that didn't have to. How dare you call me into the waters, the same waters as those thieves and those crooks and those perverts and those murderers. How dare you put me in the same category as all of them. Church, please, we, you know what? I know this isn't a conscious thing that happens in many of us, but subconsciously, we can allow ourselves to, to, to pervert into that. Where we start thinking, and what religious people do is we get to this place, or, religious, this can, or the spirit of religion can get to this place where we begin to think that religious people think they are good and all the others are bad. Okay, I, I'm the good, I, I, and I don't need what the bad people have. I, I don't need that. And how dare you call me to associate with those who are sinful? Again, I, I, we don't, you know, even Jesus, and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, even Jesus went and, and you know, he had fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. So as Christians, we, we use those words a lot, but we don't often understand them. John had two major themes that he used in his ministry, two things that he really preached and proclaimed. And one was sin, and one was repentance. Where's the cheers? Sin and repentance. Yay! Listen, we're going to talk about this because I believe it with all my heart that we have got to understand fully and completely what sin and repentance is. Amen. We have to understand what those things mean because there's a lot of confusion that goes on today. And if we don't understand what sin and repentance is, then there is no way that the Bible really truly makes sense. 
There is no way that our lives will truly make sense if we don't understand what sin is and what it does and what repentance and real repentance is. And John is calling people, this greatest man that Jesus said ever lived, he said he called people to sin and then to repent of their sin. He didn't call people to sin. He called people from sin <laughs> and into repentance. Well, let me just tell you something. You might want to write this down. Yeah, here's a markism. <clears throat> sin is a major theme of the Bible. Okay, it starts in Genesis, and you'll see it weave its way all the way through to Revelation. There is, I mean, a lot that he says about sin. Sin is a theme of the Bible. And the Bible uses all sorts of different ways of being descriptive about sin. He uses, the Bible uses analogies. The Bible uses word pictures. The, the Bible uses descriptive words and, and, and images. I want to, there's a, a really, I was doing some research on some of this, and there's a, a guy, Cornelius Platanga, that, that wrote this description of sin, and I wanted to share it with you because I think it's very relevant. Listen to what he says, and I'm going to put it up here on the screen for you so you can follow along. The Bible presents sin by ways of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness expressed in an array of images. Okay, so there's an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target. Sin is the wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is the beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, listen, sin is never normal. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. So it is absolutely necessary for us to understand what is sin. It's broken down. Sin, sin, is not go, sin is going too far. Sin is when you're not going far enough. Sin is a hard heart, a stiff neck. Sin is living a life with anyone or anything other than God of the Bible at the center of your identity and the joy in your life. Sin is what we think, it's what we feel, it's what we do. Sin is what we fail to think, what we fail to feel, what we fail to do. Sin is commission, where we do what is evil. Sin is also omission, where we fail to do what is right. Sin is not just action, it is also inbred. It comes from conception. The Bible says, in fact, in that conception, that sin goes down to the root of every single one of us. If you are of the seed of man, you are of that seed of sin that's been passed down. And from that time of conception, by nature, we are sinners. And it goes, listen, all the way down to the root. And every human problem, this sin is the problem. Sin is at the core, it's at the root of every human problem. And it leads to all of the other things, the problems in life. All the isms come from this root of sin. 
sexism, racism, classism, on and on and on and on. It, it all, look, it's all a result of sin. All of those things are, they're a problem, but they're not the problem. They are a reflection of what the root has producing in fruit. But the root is the problem. But we don't like to deal with the root. We just want to deal with what people see. We just want to deal with the fruit. Just cut down the fruit and don't worry about the root. What can I do? And cultural repentance is when we begin to deal with the fruit, not the root. So church, sin is the problem. But all we see are the effects. And we just want to deal with the effects. And so oftentimes, even in the church, we don't get to the root of the problem, which is sin. Church, your problem is sin. Yes, I'm not, again, maybe you've come under the blood and you've received the forgiveness of God. Praise God for that. But sin is still something that's crouching at the door, wanting to rise up in us. The root is sin. And listen, our lives, our culture, our, our world, it never changes until we really deal with the root. Amen. And so John isn't necessarily dealing with the fruit. He's dealing with the root. He's getting to the heart of the matter with his preaching. He's addressing the issue of sin. And he is commanding people, compelling people, repent, repent of your sin. Look, I mean, it's not a popular message. I know by telling you that we're gonna talk about this for the next few weeks, I know that many of you think, well, I don't need to deal with that stuff. I don't need to deal. They might need that, but I don't need to deal with that. When's this part of the series going to be done? I'm not telling you. You have to come and find out. Look, even if, you, even if this isn't your issue, you should learn this so that you can help other people with their issue. Don't be so selfish. That's a sin. Look, church, I know, I know, I've done this long enough to know that it is not popular today to talk about sin. Sin is the new four-letter word. It's not popular. Look, it, it, it's okay in, for me, it, I mean, it, <laughs> hey, listen, even more unpopular than sin is Repentance. Who are you to tell me I'm out of change? No way. But I have found this in the church. It's okay. And, and we, Joni and I, we were joking about this, but Joni said, well, maybe at this point you should, you know, point outside to other churches, you know, not this church, but other churches. I said, well, that, that, that kind of takes away the point. It's okay for me to talk about other people's sin. But man, it, it's not okay for me to talk about your sin. Hey, it's okay for me to talk about other people's need for repentance of their sin. But it's not okay when you start talking about your need to repent of your sin.
Hey, you know what? We're in a day and age, and that's why I said that in the very beginning. It gets so confusing. We're in a day and an age when, honestly, even as pastor, and I, I just refuse to give in to this, but as pastor, you know, it's not even okay for me anymore to call sin, sin. I, I can't even be against it. I have to either accept or enable you in your sin, or I, there's something wrong with me. It's this backwards world that we live in today that calls right wrong and wrong right. So we, you know, again, I, I expect you to, you know, oh, you're in sin. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. That is oftentimes what we expect. Look, John stood up to a whole nation. He stood up to angry people. He stood up to them and he says, hey, you know what? Your problem is sin. And the only answer is repentance. You are sinners and need to repent. Well, that's what the greatest guy ever said. And you know, anytime there is a biblical truth that God gives us, the enemy wants to come in with a counterfeit. All right? And and so I want to talk about some of these counterfeits, not so that you can go into the counterfeit and pull out what you want to get from it. It's counterfeit. We want to know the truth and we want to find out because oftentimes, listen, our flesh loves the counterfeit more than it loves the truth. So there's always going to be this tendency for us to get pulled into the counterfeit, pulled into the counterfeit, pulled into the counterfeit. Why? Because it feels natural to our flesh. And so we want to go into that. And we're going to spend some time looking at repentance. And we're going to spend some time looking at the counterfeits of repentance. And I want to take some time to look at some of these things because I think we need to understand and know what repentance is and what repentance is not. And I am asking you, church, to really to, to, to pay attention, to hear what it is that, you know, this is important stuff, to hear what it is that God is saying. Because if you don't know what to do with your sin biblically, you will ruin your life. And, very likely, play a part in destroying the lives of some of your loved ones around you. It's that big of a deal. So, we need to know, what does biblical godly repentance look like? And and what does cultural repentance look like? What what do the the counterfeits look like? And one of those counterfeits to biblical repentance, just like I told you last week, there is a, a religious worldview, there is a Christian worldview, and there is a biblical worldview. And today, those don't, let, they don't match up. And you know what? There is a counterfeit. Biblical godly repentance is not religious repentance. Amen. Amen. <laughs> All right. Religious repentance is this. I see your sins, but I refuse to see my sins. Religious repentance says, I'll confess your sins. I'll I'll confess the sins of our church. I'll confess the sins of our nation. I'll confess the sins of our world. But I won't confess my own sin. Religious repentance is when I get all unhappy and all upset about your sin but I am not even troubled at all by my own sin. Look, there's a whole bunch of this that goes on. How else could a pastor stand up in the pulpit while he's in the midst of an affair and stand up and talk to you about abstinence and adultery and the sin of those things? 
It's religious repentance. What's for you isn't for me. We can put ourselves in that position. And one of the ways you can see is religious people, they tend to get a place of self-righteousness and piousness and holiness where it leads them to begin to believe that they are better than everyone else. Where church, they begin to think, a religious person begins to think and begins to seep in where they think, well, I'm good and everyone else is bad. And that does, it seeps into our lives. It seeps into where we are. So religious people want to talk about everybody, everything else. You know, religious people want to talk about, you know, being a busybody. They'll, they'll be a gossip. They'll talk about all of these things over here, looking down at others, nitpicking others. It's not, it's not a point where, again, we're trying to help people. We're just talking about them. I, I will tell you this, in the church, religious people are the biggest pain in, in the back pockets there is. It is, because again, that is what religious people do. And the way it works is they're always glad to talk about what other people have done wrong, but they never say things like, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I'm at fault. Can you please forgive me? See, some of you are married to that person, and I'm sorry. Jesus gives a story in Luke chapter 18. He gives a story of two men who come into the temple or who come to church. And one prays with haughty eyes. He's got his head lifted up and he's just exalting and, and he's full of religious pride. He says, God, thank you that I'm not like all the others. Thank you, Lord, that I am better than they are. Thank you, Lord, that I don't do the things that all these other people do. But ultimately, you know what he's doing? He's totally focused on everyone else's sin and neglecting his own. And then you got on the other side of the church, you got this guy who's this tax collector, this guy who comes in, and, and I mean, he's not filled with any kind of pride. I mean, he is completely humbled, filled with grief. He's looking to the ground. He can't even look up. And this guy, he can't raise his eyes. All he simply says is, oh God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Lord God, have mercy on me. You know what he's doing? He's dealing with his own personal sin. He's in repentance of his own sin, not anyone else's. He's filled with this humility, not pride. And Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, this man and not the other left justified or declared righteous in the sight of God. Look, religious people, are really good at overlooking their own sin and talking about everyone else's sin. And sometimes we can wrap it all up in a, in a, you know, as we, in a prayer request for somebody else. The Bible doesn't call us to gather together in a prayer request for, for somebody else that hasn't asked us for sin. I mean, asked us for prayer. If I'm in sin, I come to you and I ask you to pray for me. I'm not asking you to go get everybody else to pray for me so that you have the ability to tell everyone else what I'm struggling with. Come on, amen. 
It looks holy, but it's not. Now, again, there's a fine line. James tells us we are supposed to pray one for another. So we are supposed to do that. We're supposed to pray one for another. And, And if somebody's done something or somebody has an issue, pray for them. But don't go tell everybody else about it just so you can tell everybody else about it. Amen? Another thing that godly repentance is not, and godly repentance is not pagan repentance. Now that may sound uh, easy, I mean, to understand, but these are all different false forms, these counterfeits of repentance. And think about this. One of the aspects that distinguishes uh, Christianity from paganism is the Bible says that God is good. Amen? The Bible tells us God is good. God is always good. There is nothing that you, I can do to make God good. How can we make God good when he is good? There, I mean, that's just who he is. There's nothing, listen, there's nothing you can do to make God good. There's nothing you can do to make God be good. He is good. And he's good all the time. Now, paganism assumes that God isn't good, that God is angry, that God is upset. And now you and I, we have to do things that will manipulate God so that we can make God, by our, good, by our choices, that we can make God do what is good. And, and listen, there are a lot of people probably in here right now that have made deals with God. Hey, if you'll forgive me, God, or, or God, I, I, I come to you and I ask for forgiveness, if you'll do this. Look, it, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You can't make God be good. And pagan repentance or paganism is when I tell God I'm sorry so that I can get God to do something for me. Oh, God, I know I shouldn't be dating this guy, or I know I shouldn't be dating this girl. And so I'm sorry. So that means, God, you have to save them and make everything okay for us to be dating. Oh, come on. How many of us have made you know, deals like that with God? Okay, God, I, I'm sorry that I did this. I'm sorry that I did this bad thing. And if I tell God, listen, if I tell God I'm sorry, that means I'm going to make God be good so God doesn't make it so that I can be found out and everything that I've done will stay secret. Look, that's the opposite of real repentance. Make a deal with God. Make God be good. Okay, God, I'm sorry. Now God has to heal me. Okay, God, I'm sorry. Now God has to bless me. Okay, God, I'm sorry. Now God has to prosper me. Look, God is God. He is the almighty one. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the beginning and the end. He is everything. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. God in no way whatsoever can ever be manipulated. He's not codependent with any of you. God cannot be manipulated. You cannot make God good because God is good. But we try to do that. And oftentimes what happens is we make a deal with God. Look, God, I'm sorry for this sin. Therefore, God, you have to do this. And then because God's not codependent, God doesn't do what you told him to do. And so we go back, well, see, it didn't work. Might as well keep doing what I was doing. It's pagan repentance. It's we try to make God be good to do what we think is good 
We put ourselves in the position of God where we feel we know better what is good than what God, who is good, knows. Amen, Pastor Mark. That was really good. <laughs> so let me just, and, I, and I'm going to have this last one here. Godly repentance is not the same as worldly sorrow. Godly repentance is not the same as cultural repentance. Look, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, I perceive that you have worldly sorrow or worldly grief. Church, you know that Christians and non-Christians alike can feel bad about what they've done. Come on, amen? amen. Why, 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 why do I feel bad? Well, because you're bad. Amen. I, mean, <laughs> I just saved some of you some counseling uh, expenses. <laughs> Look, God gave you a conscience. Yes, he, did. You, he gave you, you know, we are into this world. We're, we're image, image bearers of God. And he's given us this conscience. He's given us a moral rudder. And as Christians, we still, we have the ability to grieve, to quench, to resist the Holy Spirit. God has given us a free will. But the Holy Spirit, he works through our conscience. Jesus said it would be that way. That the Holy Spirit comes to convict us in regards to sin and in regards to righteousness. He's going to use your, he's going to convict you. He's going to use your conscience. And you, we have the ability to make choices that would grieve him. So what happens in a worldly way is there's this worldly sorrow, this worldly grief, which leads us towards what would be called cultural repentance where I feel bad, I'm sorry for what I've done, but I don't change. It's where we deal with the fruit of sin, but not the root of sin. Look, if you don't deal with the root of sin and only deal with the fruit of sin, it's only a matter of time before the root of sin will, will begin to produce the fruit of sin again just a matter of time. But in our culture today, we want to deal with it this way. Again, because the, the, the fallen man really wants to um, find cultural ways to do this. Isn't it amazing that, that, I mean, God gives us his way and our flesh wants to find every other way. That's why Jesus had to tell us, hey, the road to heaven is narrow Okay, broad and wide. There's lots of ways out there and you're going to be tempted to that. But just follow me. So in our culture, we set up this false religion as a way to deal with cultural repentance or, or these worldly sorrows. And in this cultural uh, uh, false religion, we have false prophets and false pastors and priests and priestesses. And then there's through that, this false gospel that's presented. I'm going to use as an example a uh, I'm going to use Tiger Woods as an example. I, I, I've been having like knee problems and I, I know I had heard a, a thing, I read something about where Tiger Woods was struggling with knee problems and I thought, well, he's got all the money in the world. Let me find out what he did to deal with his knee problems. So I started reading this article and as I'm reading this article, I realized it wasn't really about knee pains. It was, not, it was, it was about Tiger Woods and the scenario and what happened in his life um, in 2010 when his sins got found out. 
church, again, it happens in our culture. It happens in us. It's, please, our tendency is to be drawn to this. And I'm not saying that to you in a negative way. I just want you to hear that and understand that from an informative way. Because what happened in Tiger Woods' situation, I'm going to give you as an example. It's, a, again, a, a highly visible example. Happens in us in small ways, just the same. And listen, cultural repentance is when somebody doesn't repent. It's when they get caught. Look, the opposite of repentance is getting caught. That person wasn't coming forward and saying, hey, I've done this, I've said this, I did this bad thing, I need to just be honest and I need to come forward and I need to talk about it. Or it's not me saying, hey, I failed to do this good thing, I just got caught. Do you know what it means when somebody got caught? Usually, it means they weren't gonna stop unless you made them. Now, again, I, I know that there are extenuating circumstances in people's life where there's some real bondages and things that hinder people. But, but the truth is, is that when we don't come forward and say, you know what, I need to quit, I need a problem, it's because we want to hide that thing and we really aren't planning to stop. We just don't like the effects that it's bringing in our life. And so you get caught. And then there's this place where we, we have this worldly sorrow. And when we have this worldly sorrow, like what Tiger Woods did, he had, to, he, had, he had to say, you know what, I'm really sorry, I did this horrible thing. I feel really bad. And then, so ideally, and this is what his PR rep told him, and the PR rep is, I'm going, oh man, that is, that is the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. This worldly spirit starts speaking into his ear and saying, you know what, you need to go out on this show and you need to act really sad. You need to, in fact, can you, can you cry? Come on, it'll show that you're really, really sad and upset about what you've done. Oh, come on, there's been a lot of manufactured tears over the years. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and use this. Might hurt some of your feelings, but basically, what we get is the cultural equivalent of Catholicism. And I will say pagan Catholicism. And again, please hear me out. I, I'm coming from a place of experience. I grew up a Catholic boy. I was raised a Catholic boy. I went to Catholic school. I was an altar boy. Did all of those things. But listen, the way it works in Catholicism is that you would go into this confessional and you go into this little tiny room and maybe if you've never been there, you go into this little tiny room and, and there's this screen that's right here where you can't see through it and they can't see back this way. And so you go into this room and you get down on your knees and you come into this place and, and, and you say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been however long since my last confession. And then you go on to list all of your sins. And, and I can remember at times as a little boy, our young, you know, in my junior high years and high school years when my mom would make us go to confession. I can remember just laying out this long list of things and I can just imagine what this guy's thinking. <laughs> Hold on, son. <clears throat> but then the father would say, I declare you forgiven. I forgive you. Now, and then he would say, now go do this. 
Go say this many rosaries. Go say this many Hail Marys. Go say this many Our Fathers. Go and then go act these acts of contrition. Go do these good dudes, good deeds to, to pay back all that you've done and then make it all up to God and then everything will be just fine. Okay, I mean, that is what, that is what happens in confession. And so what happens in our cultural view of that is that what sometimes, you know, we got this thing, it's this worldly sorrow. You know, I've done something wrong. And so what do we do? We need someone in this cultural position of a priest that we can go to, somebody that will absolve me of my sins. And again, I don't believe in any of this, please. I have one priest that I go to. He is Jesus, the high priest, and there is no mediator between us. I go to Jesus and Jesus alone. But what happens in culture is you got to find someone that plays the moral superior role. And someone like a celebrity, to find that person that's a moral the, the, uh, superior place, what the, what the celebrity will do is they'll go on a show like Oprah. The, the cultural high priestess. Or they'll go on Jimmy Kimmel. Or you know, Dr. Phil. Or, or they'll visit the women on The View. And the set becomes a confessional. And the person walks in, and, and, and they've never walked in before looking like this, but they walk in, and they're so, so, so sad. And they're so scared. And I'm really upset for what I've done. And, and they might be. Again, I'm not denying that. And then the person that's in this position of moral, spiritual authority, or this cultural priest, says, tell us what you've done. And how has it made you feel? And so you cry and, and, and you say all these things that, the, that your worldly spirit, your PR rep told you to say, whatever that false spirit may be. And then you declare all these things that you've done and then they, they say, you know what? We, you, you go and you, your sins aren't forgiven yet though. You see, you have to go do penance. You have to go to Purgatory. Today, church, purgatory is where you go to pay back what you've done. Today, we often call it rehab. Again, rehab is often a cultural version of purgatory. Everybody's got to go to rehab. Everybody, no matter what you've done, if you've done something bad, you really probably need to go to rehab. Now, there's drug rehab, and there's sex rehab, and there's alcohol rehab, and there's my dad didn't hug me enough rehab, there's gambling rehab, there's... Whatever it is, there's rehab. And so people will go into rehab for a while and it becomes like cultural purgatory. This place where I'm gonna go and pay back the things that I did. Now again, please, I believe in rehab. I am not talking down about rehab because of, of the, they don't do anything good. I think there's a lot of good that's done in rehab and a lot of people find abilities and things in their life that will help them through rehab. So I am not talking down about rehab. What I'm saying is that you cannot go to rehab and think that you're going to find forgiveness from your sins by going to rehab. Yeah. Rehab can't forgive you. 
But in culture, this is what we do, and then we come back out, and you go back, and you go back to those people that you think you need to, you know, put into that place of priest or priestess, and you say, you know what, I'm really, really sad for what I've done, and I'm really uh, upset about the bad things that I've done, but I feel like I've paid it all off. I went to rehab, and I've kind of been born again. I got a new lease on life. I, I found what I was missing. I'm a whole person now. And now I'm going to give lots of money to women and children and cute little animals so that I can show that I have real sorrow, real worldly sorrow. And then this person that's in this position of cultural priest, out in front of the public and everybody, they decide whether or not you're forgiven. They're in this position of God. And like in Tiger Woods' situation, you could, I could use all sorts. Of, I mean, I could have used Alec Baldwin or all sorts of people in this place. Okay, you said you were sorry. You went to rehab. You wrote big checks to people in need. We forgive you. Tiger, go and golf again. Look, it's worldly sorrow which leads to cultural repentance which is not real repentance. This whole culture that we live in today is built on this. And people don't change, not at a heart level. They can't because they haven't dealt with the root of sin. They've just dealt with the fruit of sin. They've dealt with what they do, not who they are. And in those situations, church, there is no atonement. There's no penalty that's been paid for sin. There's no shed blood. Listen, your sins requires the shedding of blood. There is, without the shedding of blood, there is no no remission or forgiveness of sin. Blood had to be shed for your sins. In this situation, there's no Jesus, there's no Christ, there's no Messiah, there's no new life that's found in Christ. There's none of that. It's a bunch of counterfeits, a bunch of worldly sorrow, a bunch of cultural repentance that leads us to deal with the fruit of something and ignore the fruit of something. And again, please, I'm not... I'm not saying any of this. I, listen, for Tiger Woods, I pray that the guy would come to genuine biblical repentance and be forgiven of his sins, not just have worldly sorrow. But I believe this. And I believe that because we are, in a, we are born into this, na- is this life with a fallen nature, we are all prone towards this. We are all prone to look towards the counterfeit because it feels more natural with our flesh. Our culture has a desire for this. Our culture has a desire for a high priest. But it isn't amazing that your friends, that the people around you, sometimes even the people in church, will look to every counterfeit high priest and yet ignoring the great high priest, Jesus the Christ, God who came in the flesh. We'll we'll search the world for someone that can forgive us of our sins. Someone that can absolve us from this guilt and sorrow. Someone that can clear me of my guilty conscience. But church, without Jesus, we end up with a bunch of powerless, ineffective counterfeits that have no ability to forgive us of our sins. 
Every single one of us, every single one of us, we have all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, born of a woman, born of the seed of man, every single one of us, we need to be forgiven. And Jesus Christ is the only way. Only Jesus can forgive and cleanse the human heart. Because the Psalms tells us that only against you, Lord, have I sinned against. And church, everything else is counterfeit. Worship team, would you come back up, please? Let Let me ask you. Are your sins forgiven? Have you, and again, please, I am not saying this pointedly. These are things I've been searching in my own heart. Lord God, I don't care what the people think. I just want to be right before you. God, am I walking in a place of genuine biblical repentance in my life? And so I ask you the same questions. Are your sins forgiven? I mean, forgiven, the root. Look, the root of sin in us continues to produce the fruit of sin from us. Galatians tells us this. But when we become forgiven and we pray, God, fill me with your spirit. Fill me up. Holy Spirit, come dwell within me. Give me a new heart, a cleansed heart, a heart of flesh. When we cry out to him, out of the Holy Spirit begins to become the fruit of the spirit. What fruit? is being reflected in our lives. Because again, it comes out of the root. Or we can do some good things, but what is it that's coming out? Look, genuine repentance requires this. You must, you must acknowledge your sin. You must acknowledge I am a sinner and I need a savior. I tried all these different ways and it has all failed. I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And then we must acknowledge that we trust and believe by faith that Jesus Christ is that Savior. That He is the one the Bible tells me He sent for me. And then we must repent. Repent means we must turn away from our sins. Both the sins that we have committed by action and the sin that's in us from birth. We must repent. And then we receive by faith, we receive the gift of forgiveness supplied only by the grace of a loving God who sent Jesus Christ to pay the sacrifice. Look, you may not think your sin is that serious, but I want to tell you it is. Your sin is so serious that someone has to die for your sin. Someone has to die. Blood must be shed for your sin. And church, it's either you or it's Jesus. But someone has to die. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Either you will pay the penalty for your sins or you will accept the gift of God where Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin where he stood in your place and went to the cross 
And he died the death that you deserve so that you could live the life that he declared. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died so that he could rise from death, so that he could overcome death, hell, and the grave, and that you and I could experience eternal life because of the resurrection. He died for your life. He lives. He died for your death. He lives for your life. And church, in all that, he says now, the choice is yours. It's yours. What will you choose? Life or death? It's in the power of your tongue. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you as my Savior. I pray that you come into my life because I can't, I can't deal with the consciousness or the unconsciousness of my sin. I can't deal with what it's doing in my life. And God, I need you to come and I need you to share your spirit with me, forgiving me, restoring me. Or you can go on continue to think, ah, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. But one day, every single one of us will stand before a holy God and we will be judged by the decision that we made on this earth, either to receive by grace the forgiveness of our sins through Christ Jesus our Lord or to reject Him as they did in the Bible and stand before God to hear Him say, Away from me, you evildoer. I do not know who you are choice it's yours will you bow your heads with me in prayer Lord God in the name of Jesus we come to you and thank you God that you are gracious and good oh God you are good you are always good and you're here today to minister Lord to us the grace that we don't deserve so that we don't have to receive the penalty that we do deserve God we love you thank you look if that's you today do just as we said call out to him Lord God I I am a sinner it's at the very heart of who I am and I need the forgiveness that only you can bring and I pray today Lord that Jesus I trust you therefore come into my life come into my heart and and forgive me of my sins Lord I, I need you I can't do it on my own sick and tired of just being sick and tired Lord I need life and I pray that you would bring that life in me oh God I praise you and thank you today just call out to him he says all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved oh God have your way in us today personal church is between you and him
bless you. Have a beautiful day. Don't forget, get signed up for the uh, um, Valentine's Banquet. And uh, again, keep, keep Lori and Frank in your prayers as her father-in-law or stepdad has passed away. And just need some grace over them today as they celebrate his life. God bless you. Go be the church. Amen. Church is not over. Church is about to begin. So go be the church. God bless you.